This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm talking with steel pan artist Joy Laps. As a band leader, composer, and educator, Joy is on an exploration of history, community, and creativity through the steel pan, which she describes as an instrument of resistance. Her latest release, Girl in the Yard, reflects her instrument's traditional calypso role, but she also expands its boundaries with her voice as a jazz composer and improviser. The album features her original compositions and her husband, Larnell Lewis, on drums. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. Our latest Patreon content features former guests, including Ash Sohn, Eric Slick, Joe Bergamini, Nate Felty, and Chuck Palmer, talking about specific songs they've tracked drums for and all the technical and creative aspects of those recording processes. There's also a video by me illustrating my favorite warm-up routine, which I've found to be really useful and effective over the years. You can get access to this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month, so check that out. We'd really appreciate your support. Once again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. So as you'll hear, Joy's journey with the steel pan is a very personal one, very much connected to her family history and her community, and that has helped shape her point of view musically and otherwise. This record, like all of her and Larnell's musical endeavors, is a family effort. So let's get to it with Joy Laps. start just by having you tell us a little bit about your instrument because I think you know most most people know what the steel pan is and what it sounds like um, but you know not not a lot of people play it and even fewer people do what you do with it um, so could you just give us a little bit of a background on on that instrument and how you came to it and and what your approach to it is sure sure so um, for those listening that don't know about the steel pan, also known as the steel drum, it's a melodic percussive instrument, and it was invented, um, it's said to be invented in the uh, Twin Islands of Trinidad and Tobago, and it's less than 100 years old. So we don't credit one person with this invention, but it emerged in the late 1930s, or early 1940s in, um, in Trinidad and Tobago. And um, that has had a lot of um, growth and development and innovation since its initial, you know, coming to be. Um, and also contributions just from people from other islands as well. And, and more, I think, even, even more widely, um, you know, in more modern times. 
It is, I always say that the things that I love most about it is that it's an instrument of resistance. And so when you trace the history back, um, we trace the history um, or the, all the way back to West African, um, those who were enslaved to West Africans, Mm -hmm. um, obviously initially free, but then enslaved and brought through the transatlantic slave trade. Um, And so we, we look at, um, you know, instruments like the skin drums, like the djembe's and some of the different um, uh, bells and stuff like that. And there were limitations on when um, those who were enslaved, when they could play, um, they were afraid they were using them to send messages and especially sending the message of like, let's get out of here, let's be free. Right. And so they would ban and limit when um, the instruments could be used. And also just they were used for celebration and we know the power of the drum. Um, and so um, they went from the, the, the skin drums to what we call the tambu bamboo. And um, so made long bamboo um sticks mm-hmm. made from bamboo trees and if you're ever in trinidad and tobago um especially tobago like you have beautiful rainforests um filled with bamboo trees and I, and I, one of the reasons again why i just think about like resistance and innovation is because when you look at this history you see how innovative and how um creative the um the musicians and the people were who were who were moving this forward and anyway from tambu bamboo um even after the abolition of slavery still a clear distinction between rich and poor and um and they said you know how are we going to reproduce those those rhythms and they would limit when they could play the tambu bamboo and so you can't play it or you can only play it at this time and they went to the iron band so anything metal um ugh, break break uh break drums biscuit tins it's you know if you read articles they talk about trinadians having to tie down their metal garbage cans hmm. because people would steal the garbage cans to make music and um <laughs> and it was during that time that you know of playing those metal drums that it was realized that you get different pitches by changing um the shape and so again we don't credit any one person but we lo- we know in the late 1930s early 1940s it emerged in Trinidad and Tobago and um and eventually they moved from metal drums biscuit tins to um, the 55 gallon oil drum. Mm-hmm. And again, if you know, um, you know, Trinidad is oil rich. And so a lot of other islands, you ask people where did I go on vacation? And Trinidad is not always a place that people say that they're vacationing because they don't depend as much on that, just like economically speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, other than carnival, which is just a place to be, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, you know, so, you, know you, you wanna be there, but um, again, they, they use discarded 55 gallon oil drums and eventually used oil drums that were intended for the purpose of um, making a steel pan. So that's, I feel like I can't, I can't talk about steel pan without, you know, <laughs> just, and just mentioning that and talking about just how difficult it was for, for those innovators, those Afro Trinidadians, um, you know, and so, right. um, and you asked, what do I do with it? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, um, you know, you're, you're a, a, a jazz artist essentially um, on that instrument. And, but, you know, given the, the brief history you just outlined, it's, uh, you know, it, it's roots are in folk music, like it's a folk instrument. Um, and when I think of, you know, the, the steel pan players that I'm familiar with who, who have taken it beyond its sort of traditional folk um genre i i think of uh othello molinois who played with jaco mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh andy norell who i know uh through listening to him through the stuff he did with bella fleck and the Flecktones. um so i was thinking about that and then a couple days later i was reading through like your bio and your press release and was and there was andy norell like listed as as sort of your mentor and and uh one of your one of your teachers in the toronto area um so uh, how did how did you come to this instrument and what was your journey of of taking it from you know its its traditional folk role into your jazz expression? Thank you. Okay, great question. So I actually learned steel pan. So first of all, my family's from Antigua um and I was born in Toronto um and there's a large Caribbean diaspora in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um and so I I went to a a church. I go into this Anglican church, Church of the Nativity. They had a predominantly Afro-Caribbean congregation, our minister from Antigua. And he was just like, you know, some people might have chose knitting for their congregation <laughs> or, you know, I don't know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he wanted steel pan. And I think he himself wanted to learn. And so um, they offered lessons. And my godmother, she came running with her checkbook and she said, <laughs> I, 
I want to get a pay for these first set of lessons. And my sisters were there. They also took lessons and I just really enjoyed it. Like I think when all, I didn't have an instrument at first and after church when everybody would want to go and play or hang out, like I wanted the key to the steel pan room because I right. wanted to practice more. So I was wondering um, if like, if, if this was your first instrument or if like some other, you know, steel plant, steel pan players, you started on drums or something else and then kind of made your way to that. But that was like your first kind of musical instrument straight to the pan. DJ and my mom sang in church. So I, it was more like singing. And then right, right. I was a, I was a recorder club nerd, <laughs> bass recorder and alto saxophone and, you know, and then, and then the steel pan, okay. but mostly, yeah, that was kind of mostly it. That was my instrument that I think that I feel the most connected to that I spent the most time with. And, and how old were you at that point? Uh, like 14. Okay. 14. So at, at what point does it, uh, you know, uh, turn from being like, Oh, this is a cool instrument. I have fun with it to like, this is going to be my vehicle to express myself and create. That, you know, it kind of just, um, it happened really organically. I would be our band, our church band would play gigs. And then my teacher would like, he'd be like, Oh, I have a gig. Like he, a lot of steel pan players, like they play with like solo with tracks and mm-hmm. steel pan. And so then he, he would like bring me on his gigs. And then after a while he would like send me on my own gigs. Cause he was like getting double booked. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really was not, it was not intentional. And then it was through that, that m- then my dad, I always say that my dad kind of like Joe Jackson, me and <laughs> like, you're making a CD. <laughs> right? Right, right. You know, and I think part of it was like, I just, I loved the instrument, but I didn't see this as a career. Like mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a, what, even when it was time to go to university, I, I did an undergrad in international business. Cause I didn't think I, I knew enough because we, we often teach this instrument in the rote space. Mm-hmm. So I was like in band with my saxophone, but just didn't think I really like mastered theory enough to go to post-secondary with it. And um, yeah, it was during that time. I was like, I think I was like in first year university. My dad's like, you're making a CD. And, and I think part of it was that like, I, I actually, um, I think it was just how it touched people. So I think my, my like movement, even, even into education, it was like, cause I was playing gigs and then people would just have these, um, it was just, you know, you're playing for people's weddings and you're playing mm-hmm. for their baby showers and their funerals. And you're playing for all these really important, like life altering events. Right. right? And, and it was kind of like the responses. It was like, and as a woman at that time, like you don't typically, you typically traditionally you wouldn't have been able to play in church and traditionally you wouldn't have been a woman playing steel pan. And that's changed a lot. Right. But even for me to, to learn and start there and I would go, I'd play at churches and women would come up to me. They would be like in their fifties and they would be like, I I would, I was never allowed to do this. Mm. And then five years later, I'd meet them at a steel pan show and they would be like, I saw you and I decided that I was going to learn and they joined like oh, wow. <laughs> this How band. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So I think it was those moments. And then after I made my record um, that I, you know, just kind of did, um, it was a traditional gospel record, um, you know, and people would like, one time this guy messaged me on Facebook and he's like, I owe you $20. And I was like, why? Do you <laughs> I don't know you. Why do you owe $20? And I guess he had a burnt copy of my CD and he's like, this is the only thing my dad would listen to on his deathbed. And, wow. or people would show up to my house and be like, Hey, I want to buy 10. I want to buy 10 CDs because everybody in my family wants one because this is the only thing that my parent would listen to. Or this is like the only thing that my child will listen to and go to sleep to. Mm-hmm. And so it was like that. And then I would go play gigs and then a teacher would say, Oh my gosh, would you come to my school? So I never walked in. I never said I was going to be an arts educator. I never, that was never my intention. Right. Um, I think as a young child, I wanted to be a teacher, but I also wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah, yeah. And, and it was just in those interactions and then understanding, I started to work with a group um, doing, uh, I, it's because I hated, I hated business so much. I took in a school at a Samba class with this amazing teacher in, in undergrad. And I was so excited to be there because it was Thursdays and it was Samba and I had a private piano lesson. <laughs> and he was just like, can you come downtown? And they're teaching, you know, um, some, some children in an underserved community. Can you come and show them some of your dance moves? Because I used to play the, the tambourine. It's a the Brazilian instrument. Right, right. And then I, I met some women who were doing amazing community engaged work with Samba. And then we just, we, we and I realized like, wow, this is like, the music is important, but like what's happening 
as a result of using the music. And so I think it, that was happening in the education and community space. And then also just on a very human level with people playing with events, playing for events and, you know, and them hearing the music. Yeah. So that's kind of like... It, it like that the steel pan like elicits a, a response from people in a way that not a lot of instruments do because like people are used to seeing a guitar or a piano or a string quartet or you know somebody singing or whatever but like if they see and hear a steel pan it's like oh, holy shit that's <laughs> that's one of those things <laughs> yeah. um totally so it i mean it, it sounds like you know you were you were kind of um it became a vehicle for you at, you know, before it became a vehicle for you to, to create and compose, it became a vehicle for you to like engage with your community. Absolutely. Yeah. So at, at what point, like you said, your first album was just sort of traditional gospel stuff. Um, at what point do you see a way forward to like create your own original music with this instrument? Uh, two things were ha- were really important. So um, my my boyfriend, turned <laughs> husband, um, I'm married to a drummer. And this oh, is a drummer Jesus, podcast. I'm Lar- sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm married. My, um, my husband's Larnell Lewis. And so he's a drummer. Holy yeah. shit. Okay. So, so I knew. Wait a minute. Okay. Huh. Stop. This interview is coming to a halt. I knew I knew Larnell played on your record. And, you know, we were going to talk about that because he's a goddamn wizard and who doesn't want to hear about that? I didn't realize you were married to him. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay, cool. Got (laughs) it. It really is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So, Larnell's my husband and we were, um, you know, we met each other and just in our time together, even even before we were dating and... um, we, we were, I was playing this gig and I met him. I actually met him the day that the, the Eastern Seaboard blacked out. <laughs> and, uh, wow. so, yeah. Anyway, so that's another whole other story. But he would always encourage me to create because I, you know, I grew up with my daddy was a DJ playing like all sorts of like whether it's jazz or um, calypso or reggae or you know what I mean. And my mom was over here like she's a country, you know, sound of music. <laughs> thing right and he just said like joy it's in you it's like it's you know this stuff it's in you and then after I finished my international business degree and I really realized that it was just not for me I (laughs) went back to school for music and um I was taking a private lesson with Gareth Burgess on pan and I was going to do my jury and he said you know you should really um just do bass drums and keys so the bass player, Andrew, who's producing the record, he was the bass player, drums, Larnell. And they, they've been, you know, they grew up in church together and they, they're like Batman and Batman. Um, <laughs> really good. And so then he just said, you know, play, he's like, do your jury without a chordal player because you want to show that you understand your chords and that you can calm through your chords and that you understand that it'll be really good. And so it was that kind of in that space that like we, we ended up kind of building a trio out of that hmm. and played together for quite a bit. And it was in, I was like writing for the trio and just writing other stuff. Um, So I think it was those two things, like being in that atmosphere and kind of being forced to do it um, to to kind of play in that space. And then Larnell in my ear being like, listen, you can write music, like you could do this. And, um, and it kind of went from there. So it, it, and then, and then also like, I went to play in Antigua. (laughs) I went to play in Antigua for a festival. I, was in the airport. I picked up Andy Norell and Calypso Station. They're a steel band based out in Paris. And I picked up the record. And um, this is when I was an undergrad. And I, I hated, I hated my undergrad. <laughs> but what we, one thing we had to do was we had to go on exchange. And so um, I opened up the record and I was like, okay, um, let me see where are you guys located? Cause they, I wanted to go to West Africa cause I wanted to do more jump, like, you know, West African drumming. And they didn't have like, I went to like this, like what they call, um, it's like a high society kind of school. And they didn't have any like um, other schools in West Africa mm-hmm. that they were partnering with. And then I want to go to Brazil because I was playing Samba, but they only had school in Portuguese and I couldn't go to like fourth year university classes right. <laughs> with like no Portuguese. Right. And, um, so then I checked out France and I had been learning French all my life and I literally emailed them. They had what they call, they called, they called, they call. And I emailed them and I said, listen, what school, like, where's your school close to, um, you know? And um, I sent them all the, 
all the schools that I could go to. And they're like, we're closest to this one. And so um, I went there and I think, and then later on, I just, I, and I, so I really got into Andy's music and, um, and not just him, like other, other, a few others that are, that were playing steel pen and the jazz idiom and just super inspired mm-hmm. by that work. So it's, it was kind of like all of those things, you know, um, that kind of just inspired me. And, and I think Larnell really, um, he really cultivated, I think, just having a space. I would have an idea and he'd be ready to like jump on the keyboard. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Or I'd write something and he was really encouraging. Like sometimes I wonder, I'm like, man, that one four, one four song, you really thought it was, <laughs> was it really good? Or are you just trying to encourage me? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> um, so I think it's all those, like all those things I think kind of came together. Yeah. Um, so with this new record, um, girl in the yard, there's a, there's a quote from you on the, the press release, um, which kind of grabbed my attention. Um, and you said the process of composing and recording this album became an exploration of how I'm able to show up in the world because of the women, especially in my community who have supported me. Um, so you mentioned your, your godmother, um, but who, who else, uh, who else are those women that you refer to? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So the, um, I think to give context to the story is, I think just in general, it's a thing of like, you know, when you're trying to make your way as an artist, it's not always easy. So you kind of just, you need support. And my family and friends have been really supportive. But especially um, in 2017, Larnell and I had our first child mm-hmm. and um so his name's Kari and you know I just had this plan for my and um Andrew and I like I, I'd already written like most of the music Andrew was kind of getting we we're starting to get into some of the recording and I like my plan was I'm gonna finish this record on maternity leave I'm gonna add another multidisciplinary project I was doing and so and wait, then you I'm started, gonna be a mom sorry you started recording girl in the yard in 2017 I had some stuff like, like, yeah, we were doing some stuff. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's been that and long. And actually it's been a while. And um, so my son was born and then he, um, he basically spent eight months in the hospital. He was born with, we didn't know he had an underlying Down syndrome diagnosis, wow. um, 50% blockage of the airway, several holes in his heart. And so I'm thinking, you know what I mean? I'm thinking I'm going to have the baby. I'm going to go home. Right. 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 So, eight months in the hospital and not just like, okay, now you're done. He, he has a trach. So he's an artificial airway. Mm-hmm. So he has to breathe through his throat. He still has it. Like he's four and a half now. Yeah. And every night we have a nurse in our house um, in order for me to, for the first, I don't know, the first four years of his life, I couldn't just drive him anywhere. I'd have to be in the back seat because you have to be trach trained. And then I'd have somebody driving me. So I couldn't go anywhere wow. unless I was being driven anywhere, being driven somewhere. Man. So, yeah. So in order to do anything, that's, that's what, so like a lot of times, like I need to go somewhere. I call my sisters or if I need to just like, you know, and my, my mom, she started living with us a couple months before my son was born. And um, so she's there, you know, like helping to clean up, do this, making sure the nurses feel at home. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I, he, I like, yeah. So it's like, I'm, it's a lot of work and they just really, make the work a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And so literally I would, you know, even when I was, we were in studio, um, my girlfriends, I mentioned them, Gilly and Colleen, like they're literally in the studio, in the green room. Like, you know what I mean? Like, in, um, just like, you know, up there, they're in the studio, like holding him yeah. because I have to bring him to the, <laughs> or maybe a nurse. If I, if I can't get a nurse, he has to be close to me because he has to be close to somebody who's trach trained. Right. And so like literally, um, yeah, like that's when I say that they're there. And so when you see me doing like literally right now, my mom's upstairs watching my kids mm-hmm. <laughs> because my husband's on the road. Right? right. Yeah. And so like literally in order for me to do what I do, I can't I can't do it without them. Right. And so and I think that um, I've been this idea of Girl in the Art isn't just about this record, but it's more about a movement of like this for me, it's like microcosmically like joy showing up to get this done and to do what I do, but also, and the fact that like you see joy, but you don't know, you don't see my mom. Like I'm here because I, you know what I mean? And so, and I think when we look at the movement of the steel band, it's also like, there's so many unnamed when you look at the steel band in it's, in it's glitz and glory, it's panorama. It's 120 people deep. You know what I mean? Playing on the Savannah, 
And you just see the, you see the composer of the song, you see the arranger and you see the band leader Mm -hmm. or the arranger, the band leader and the tuner. Mm -hmm. Right. That's all. That's all that's on the banner. No one's talking. No one's talking about the hundred people that are behind there. Half of them that are probably women. And then probably the other 20 people that were feeding the people in the pan yard when they were at rehearsal for eight hours. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's, it's this concept of like, this is a, like you see this, you see the spectacle, but what happened in the background? A lot of times it's, it's women right, right so that's what i that's what i meant when i said that that's that's so cool because like you're you know you've you've outlined um the history of the pan as this um you know like like you said a, a an instrument of um social justice and an instrument of community um and in you know in that that scene you just painted with like a hundred players and whatever it's you know it's a lot of people um many of whom don't get credit coming together to do a thing. And this record for you is kind of a microcosm of that. Like your, your community has come together to be able to, to put out this thing and you get to be on the cover of it and put your name on it. Um, and, and, you know, I think every record is like that. You know, there are sort of people behind the scenes that, that help a project happen. Um, but, uh, the extent to which it's happening in your world is, um, not like most records. (laughs) 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 <laughs> right, right. Uh, man, that's that's amazing. And it, I mean, is your son doing okay? He's doing well. Like we still up to like he had another airway surgery like three weeks ago. Wow. So he's doing he's doing quite well. Mm-hmm. And I think hopefully we want to have him go to school in September. You know, just like the pandemic and all these different things. Yeah. Um, but it's you know so it's it's I think he's definitely had a harder go, but I think he's really resilient and yeah. um, and he's way more stable than he was when he was born. Yeah. And so I'm and I'm really grateful for that. that affects your relationship with music like are you able to bring um your best self to music like is music kind of a refuge uh, a recharge from all of that stress and all of that hardship have there been times when you were just like drained and like didn't even have the bandwidth for music um how has it just affected your your relationship with what you do I think in different ways, like I, sometimes I know, like I'll go out on a gig and they'll be like, Oh, joy. <laughs> you obviously had something to say. About <laughs> while, right. 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 Some um, shit's coming out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I think the, like the process has been really therapeutic. I think that's the, the piece. Like I, I really don't take for granted being able to sit down and, and write some music. Mm-hmm. And my sister was here um, a couple weeks ago and I, she's like, Joy, you know, will you produce this thing for me? And I just, we sat up and, and we worked until, I don't know, two, three in the morning. And even just like that process was just really healing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even just when I sit down to listen to music, I think it's even more healing. And I just take I think I really appreciate mom- those moments of rest, yeah. the moments of to like take in like all of the the colors that people are putting into what they're doing. I think on a realistic day to day level, um, because I when my son was little and I had one, I could wrap him up in practice. Mm. And <laughs> now I have a two and a half year old and a four and a half year old. Right. <laughs> so it's like. <laughs> It's so I, I, so now the, 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 you know, my interaction with music is maybe like, okay, we're going to do some rudiments sky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because if I, if I set up my pan, they might knock it over or I can't really get into it. Like they want, they want to do it now. Right. Right. Um, and very, a lot of ukulele, a lot of wheels (laughs) on the bus. (laughs) So I think it's, it's more of that. And you're just like, 
okay. Like I remember when Larnell found the story bots because we were like, we cannot listen to like kids songs like all day long. Yeah. So, so now you're, and then you're unpacking, you know, right. um, you know, kids songs and children's music. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's different, but I, um, but I would say that like overall, um, it just, I think the biggest thing is like just the process of the process. I have so much appreciation for process. And when I really get to sit down and do it, it's just a beautiful thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned, uh, you know, your, uh, your kind of relationship with listening to music. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you about that because my, my relationship to, to listening to music has, has changed over the pandemic and it's, it's basically gotten, um, I don't want to say conservative, but like complicated music now stresses me out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like during the pandemic, during this time of sort of stress and worry and depression, um, I wanted to listen to music that that, like you said, was kind of soothing and easy to listen to and just made you feel good or at least a little better. Um, and it sounds like you kind of went through the the same thing, um, you know, going going through what you've gone through with your son. Totally. Um, I. I think that like, I'll give you, for example, I, like when I can really unwind, I'll do like a body pump workout and, <laughs> and like, and like just get the stress out. Yeah. And then I will run a bath with peppermint and put on like t- early 2000s slow jams <laughs> and just the breathiness, right. like just the breathiness in that. Yeah. It's just the most like, it's really, really soothing. Um, and I also, I think this actually started before having, before we had my son, like just literally was just like, I literally like made a, a playlist of like just some of my favorite, um, just some of my, my favorite songs that I like listen to that are like praise and worship songs. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it, we actually spoke to a doula because I, I had to get induced and we, I didn't, I actually wanted to have a home birth and ended up having to have a birth in the hospital, which was a blessing in the end. Um, but, um, and she really said that like, you can control your environment. We were, you know, and she said, and it was really interesting because that was when, um, so we, I made this entire playlist just to breathe to and to give birth to. And, um, and, and I met, we met with another doula who literally taught us how to like breathe with each other and share breath up against um, rhythm. And Larnell had this percussion app that had the best like West African and Afro-Cuban drum rhythms. Oh, wow. And we literally just breathe together. And so like, so definitely. And I, so I think like those types of things, like, it kind of kicked us off and even more. So I would say that I've, I've held on to some of those things of just like breathing, uh, um, a diffuser, (laughs) 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 you know what I mean? With essential oils and just calm, calm. Yeah. And I've, I've actually always, we always joke about it. Like I've always kind of not really been into what we would call like cat jumping music. Cat jumping music. Unpack that. <laughs> Unpack know? that phrase. Um, for me, I think like if I if I really want to listen and listen to like you know like crazy like odd meter and like all this you know stuff like I'll be like I have to really be in the mood to do that. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, because of the day to day and the you know the stress and like you said the anxiety of the pandemic, you just want calm. And I think so for me, calm is often simple. <laughs> breathy yeah you know vocal pads right <laughs> right and i i heard i heard that on your record and it's it's not that every song on there is like a mellow slow jam um mm-hmm. but even even the songs that are you know more up tempo or more vigorous like there's space in them you know there <laughs> the production the composition there there is that breath in in everything that that you're talking about um and okay so so on this record there are some um, there are some compositions that are just, you know, sort of very modern jazzy for lack of a better term. Uh, but there are some others that, that feel more traditional that have that Calypso vibe. Um, and you know, kind of the, the, the style or the genre that we generally associate with steel pan. Um, 
and I was trying like <laughs> the the sound of of steel pan is so like evocative to a certain thing, right? Like if you hear a steel pan, like you're, you're automatically on the beach with a pina colada, right? Like right or wrong. That's just what it invokes. Like, you know, the same way if you hear bagpipes, you're in the highlands of Scotland. Like it's, it, I, I feel like it's connected to a setting that much. So on the record, I feel like there are some times when it sort of leans into that identity, um, but other times when you have to break away from that identity. Um, and so like on this record or just in general, um, how do you approach that balance of like, you know, leaning into the steel pants, traditional identity versus carving out a new voice for it? Ah, well, we had this joke in my house that people think that you can only play steel pan in the key of Calypso. (laughs) And so, (laughs) right. So, um, but I think, uh, I think it's part of that dabbling in both spaces is just like there's a couple there's a couple of things first of all i think that um there's something when you know about um carnival and its connection to like emancipation and that like what it's about and if you've ever chipped down the road in carnival or you know what i mean it's just like there's just something about it Mm -hmm. and i feel like um this record again, like just concept of girl in the art and what I'm even able to do as a woman composing in this space. Like, I don't take that lightly and I don't. And when I talk, when I mentioned to you about like these women who said they couldn't do it, it's like in a lot of ways, like this record part, it's in a lot of ways, it's for them. It's for the people who couldn't, I'm thinking about them Mm -hmm. Um, and among others. And I think, so I want to also like, stay true to that a little bit, like something that feels really familiar and that, um, that connects to that, to that genre. Mm -hmm. Um, I think part of it, some of the stuff I I started to build when I was doing my master's thesis and um, one of the songs, the song that actually Andy's on, I was looking at like form um, analysis. And so it was also inspired by something that he had written um, just like the way the form looked, not necessarily like stylistically, Um, So I think there's that piece. And I know that Andrew, when he was producing the songs, um, in a lot of ways, he also wanted to look at like, even though we were looking at different people, um, we were also kind of taking a journey, like, um, uh, like, just from on the map, you know what I mean? Right, right. And and then Joe, for example, Josie's smile. Um, I think Josie's smile and 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 Granny's pan are two that are really like in that line. Josie's smile. My si- I have a sister, a half sister, and she's part Trini. And so like hmm. that's you know like she's she, that's just as that's just her. Mm-hmm. And and then my grandmother, the pan that I'm playing, she actually bought the pan. It's like and I think it's like it's an older pan. And um, and we want to do something like really traditional. Um, and to like, just to honor that sound. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's, you kind of get it there. And I, I just like, I, I love, I love those traditional pieces, but I think one of the things that I've always strived to do in my writing is, and my playing was to also show people that you can do more with steel pan than play in the key Calypso, like no disrespect, right. but to also open it up, open it up. Like I, I played so many gigs where people see my instrument and they're like, what, where's that sound coming from? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know what I mean? They don't, they don't understand. And because you know, like you said, their only experience is, you know, on the beach with a pina colada, right. you know, that's what their experience is. And I think the only, and w- again, which is a fun thing to do, but it also in a lot of ways um, minimizes the fact that it's an instrument, it's an instrument with 12 tones, the 12 tones that are on your violin and your piano and right. your flute. Yeah. Right. And I think, um, and I, and I think that like, I've just always wanted to push boundaries where I, where I could, and it was always inspired by other um, composers and, and ensembles that were pushing those boundaries. Right. Because I think that, um, that we still have a long way to go in terms of like, just, building awareness around the instrument. And I think that that mishmash 
And that coming together with other genres is is going to play a part in that. Um, you know, it's like, I remember I would play, like you're playing all this crazy stuff and people are just like, can you play 50 Cent? He had this song that had like three, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's the fact that he put it in the song right. that it's, and so we have to do, we have to do those things to kind of build that awareness. Mm-hmm. And, and I think um, the other part too, for me is like, I find even just the other day, like I, someone called me to do a workshop and right away they were saying, yeah, the noisy drums that they want to put outside. That's how they, they wanted to put the drums outside and they described it as noise. Mm-hmm. And, and people don't realize these like internal, like these kind of biases that they just have inside of them. Yeah. It's like, no, it's an instrument. It's an instrument with 12 tones. My instrument has two and a half chromatic scales. Do you know what I mean? The family of instruments has, you know, right, the, the, right. it's the orchestra, right? It's, and it's not and, any louder than the piano that's sitting inside. <laughs> Like exactly. <laughs> and if I was doing a violin workshop, would you put me outside in the sun in the middle of the afternoon? Right. No, but my instrument can go out of tune if it sits out in the sun. And people don't like and so sometimes it's almost just to kind of like drive that home. Right. Um and but also we were, because I we like, were gonna fill up the kiddie pool and make pina coladas and <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's I think part of it too, and and I feel like I, I feel like the people who came before me, they pushed through and and they had a lot to deal with. And I'm like, this is at the least that I can do to kind of continue to like build, to continue to push through and, and to, and to like, this is an instrument of resistance. So you're just going to have to know that. Right. Yeah. You can play a riffing guitar solo. Up a- <laughs> the show right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So like your, your predecessors were, you know, resisting uh, uh, systematic <laughs> oppression and, and now it's to you to resist being relegated to the, <laughs> outside the schoolhouse <laughs> it's like no we're playing inside <laughs> i love it 100 percent. um who are some of the like the the non-pan uh, uh artists instrumentalist composers that that you've drawn inspiration from oh man i i I grew up on like Stevie Wonder <laughs> and like, um, man, like just different Hugh Masekela mm-hmm. and, um, oh, like <sighs> Quincy Jones. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, like that, that was kind of, um, you know, my, my dad, like he was like Bob Marley and Bunny Whaler and like, you know, so I think when you hear, just compositionally, I think for, like, I always wanted to write music where at least when you get to the chorus, it feels like a chorus. And even if the melody is like all over the place and you can't connect with this, you can at least hum the chorus and be a part of it. Yeah. Like for me, I think like that participatory part of it is really important to me. Like, I think, um, I, I think that like music can be really cerebral and can be inaccessible to those who don't, count in seven every day. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, right? Yeah. Um, and especially, and especially when it's like not culturally, because, you know, some people count in seven, like culturally. But like, I think for me, um, music is meant to be engaging. And so it was just really important for me to, um, for that to to be there. Even just like the fact, can you sing this song? Could you hum this song within a normal range? Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, right. And if um, if I understand yeah. what you're saying, like it's 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 not about dumbing down your music. It's not about playing down to people. Um, but it reminds me of something my um, my grad school mentor said. Who uh, my grad school mentor was Bobby Watson, who was the the alto player for uh, Art Blakey and the Messengers. Um, and yeah, like you just smiled real big. You know who he is. <laughs> um, and we were in improv class one day, and and just talking about you know this conversation you know complexity versus simplicity and and bobby just said anybody can play something that nobody understands and i think um you know jazz and not just jazz but in in composition and classical composition i think it's really easy to you know come up with something complicated for for the sake of complication whereas he was saying like you know crafting something that that is both accessible and substantive is um, the real challenge, right? Coming up with something complex, like anybody can do that, but coming up with something that has substance and depth and meaning that a lot of people can still latch onto in some way, 
um, is a higher challenge and a higher calling in in music and composition imp- improvisation um, is that is that kind of where you're coming from 100 percent because I because I think when I come when I come back to like why am I like why did I actually come down this path it was because of people's engagement with the music and um and I think and when I think about why I engage with certain music I think that is something that was important to me and that I thought about um and I just I just don't see the I just don't I, for me I, I just feel like it, people need to be a part of it mm-hmm. they need to feel like they can latch onto it in some way and so that was my and that was the meeting of because I because like in my earlier work I was doing a lot of covers so it's like how can I not how can I create something um and when you play covers everybody knows it right. and that's why they enjoy it right, right? <laughs> because they know it and, and so I'm here I am I'm an instrumentalist so I'm like I want to create something new but I also want to create something that people can be a part of um because I I don't know I just it might be really cliche but I really just believe like we I'm not out here just creating for me like again like when people are knocking on your door being like <laughs> Hey, I owe you twenty dollars because it's the only thing my dad would listen to. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And this critical life moment that you're just like, well, yeah, it's not, it's not really. And even sometimes I think about, you know, I'll probably do another record that I feel, you know, with better production that I'm more happy about leaning back into those things because of how people responded to that. Like, you know, I'll probably do it. Right. Um. But yeah, like I just, it's just that's the thing. That's what I'm. I don't know. I just feel like that's kind of why I'm here. So let's talk about this husband of yours. Um, yes. How, like, what what was your uh, sort of uh, relationship to drums? Um, you know, in your in your early career, how and and how did uh, Larnell sort of change that? Um, did you play? Did you like? Let me back up. When you were a teenager, like just getting into Pan, like were, were you always playing with a drummer? Was playing with a drummer in a full band something that came later? Um, I so I played. My experience with drummers were was fairly limited. If I went to a church, like I grew up in the Anglican Church, and so and he was like in like the Church of God, where like all the killing musicians come, right? <laughs> all of them, yeah. all of them, right? And so, um, or the ones that I know. And so, um, and so they, so I, if I went to one of those churches, I would play with them, like with a drummer. Mm-hmm. And then in my steel band, we always had, it's like, it was all acoustic instruments. So we had a drum kit. Right. Um, but I feel like it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't until, and then I went to, when I was working on my second record and I was doing, I was doing, uh, my sisters and I were producing these shows. My sister sang and I played steel pan and, um, so I think, and then we would hire drummers to play for those shows. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was still kind of, it, it wasn't very often, or if I went to play like at an open mic, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in terms of Larnell changing my relationship with drums, um, definitely. Oh, and the, I'm always also forgetting that like when I was meeting him is also when I started to teach more. And when you teach steel pan, you have to play drums. And oh, so okay. I also started to like, you know, like I run to the drum kit and like, <laughs> you know and i would watch youtube videos and be like okay i have to play this song with the kids um you know is this a legit way to learn like is this video legit Mm -hmm, (laughs) (laughs) and then he would you know thumbs up or thumbs down yeah and um but i think man i've just really been able to see so much i a, a lot of people don't know this but i work in the background like just doing like managerial management type stuff and like booking right. and like, because I, I did end up getting an international degree in business right. <laughs> as much as I hated it. Yeah, yeah. So like, so like I'm the partner that hates taxes less. Yeah. And so like I, <laughs> I do that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I, so because of that, I start to, you know, like I know all of his reps. I know about, you know, I know about the endorsement world and, 
I've gone to, you know, drum clinics. And right. So you're <laughs> you're like stuff. you're a firsthand witness to the the drum universe, the the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes, all like all of that, <laughs> and and then all all of his friends, like his a lot of his good friends, like like Otis Williams, um, oh, uh, what's his name? Uh, my my, my brother in law is Ricky Lewis, mm, who plays yeah. with The Weeknd. Um, oh my gosh, Adrian Bent, mm-hmm. who. Um, you know, he's like Drake's drummer. Like these are all of like Larnell's like homies, right? right? And Justin, so, Justin Thomas, right? JT. Yes, yeah, JT yeah. and Spud and like mm-hmm. you know. So you kind of just like so then I just and so I was like into this drum universe, which actually one thing that I found really beautiful, and I don't know if it's them or the drum community, but I also I just found it that they were way they were really 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 supportive of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I, I, it's you know, I've been like, hey, oh, um, Thomas Pridgen's in town and he needs my hi hats because it broke <laughs> out the last. So like, I'm driving downtown to like give him my hi hats, like really, really, right. really supportive. Um, so I, yeah, that's kind of, and then I just, you just kind of learn about what people appreciate. You learn about like, I can schlep drums like nobody's business. <laughs> <laughs> I always people would be like, do you need me to do this? I'm like, no, man, it's in my marriage contract. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like you just kind of get to know. And and the one thing, the one thing that I would say that I know that I think most people don't know is I know when, when Larnell has a backline kit that's falling apart and it needs fixing. <laughs> right. So when I see him, I'm like, somebody get that guy a drum key because yeah. this pedal needs to be oh, no. <laughs> Man. Oh. That's great. You got his <laughs> back though. <laughs> Um, so like in, in terms of, um, in terms of what you want and need out of the drums as a band leader, as a composer, as a soloist, um, what's that journey been like? Like, are, are you kind of finding your footing and finding confidence in, in, um, telling drummers, whether it's Larnell or anyone else, um, you know, what you need and, and what they can do to, uh, you know, help your music come off? Do you have opinions about the drummers behind you and about <laughs> drumming in general? Absolutely, absolutely. So I first of all, like I'm I'm super blessed because I can sit here and write a song and be like, okay, this is what I want this shot here, I want this, and 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 I can write this with Larnell in mind. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like the first single, like I'm writing about this thing, but I know that he's gonna right solo on this. You know what I mean? Right. And so that's something that's really, really nice. I I, I also, I think with working with him, I'm kind of spoiled because he's so sensitive and he's somebody who really just, just beyond being a drummer, but like really, really is always in service to the music. Mm -hmm. And and when I think, um, and is in his brilliance is always still so humble. And so um, like super, super, super humble. And I think when I see, you know, I I deal with a lot of his clients and stuff like that. And I think that that at the end of the day, like, I think they want the brilliance of him, but I think it, he's really taught me about like what's serving the music and serving the band and really like, how can I play in a way that's going to make everybody feel good and feel supported and and look good. And so I think I've, I've really learned that Um, in terms of asking him what to do or asking a drummer what to do. Absolutely. I, and when I was writing this, um, starting to write the music, some of it, I started from the drums. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a book um, by uh, Jean-Philippe Canfant. I don't know if you've ever had him on the podcast, but Jean-Philippe Canfant is um, he's this, great drummer who wrote this book about with rhythms just from like Afro-Caribbean rhythms and um, just with different rhythms from the Caribbean. So when you listen to the record, you're hearing like the mazurka and you're you're hearing the, um, the Zouk love and different things like that. And I was, I kind of like had that. He's this amazing book with like, there's audio references and different things. And I literally like when I made my demos, like I like, you know, you know, how, you know, how, like you're writing drum music in Sibelius. It really sucks. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. because, but like, so I was able to really like articulate those things um, and, and, and have a good reference. And, and, and I think being with working with Larnell and just hearing him talk, I also kind of get to learn more of the language yeah. and learn. Cause I remember he would say like, yeah, he worked with this, um, vocalist she's this amazing vocalist julie black and he'd be like she says she wants more paprika 
And so, but that's sometimes difficult to interpret. So yeah. I really just learned like, okay, um, I need to tell him, I need you to give me like, play the bass drum on the one. I need more, like, you know what I mean? Or I, I need the song to go like this or, yeah. you know what I mean? Or yeah. I need your drum pad because I want these other um, you know, you know, I need these like the the chime sound or different things that I know that you're not just gonna bring with you because you're not a percussionist, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I continue, and I think it's an ongoing learning, but I definitely feel like I can articulate myself yeah. <laughs> in a way that is clear um, to yeah. drummers because it's hard. It's it hard is. when you've been asking for spices. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've I've had so many people tell me so many weird things about what they want, and and it's a fraught thing because you know if if a non drummer sometimes a non drummer can put something a certain way that like even though it's not in the drum lingo, it it illustrates it in a different way that kind of gets me thinking differently. But you know, more often than not, it it just doesn't make sense to my drum brain or uh, you know what like what they're actually trying to say is kind of the opposite of what they actually want from the drums. So you know your your ability as a, as a band leader and as a um, you know an artist to just speak a little bit of drum uh, <laughs> to the drummer is is greatly appreciated. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna thank you on behalf of all of us. <laughs> Um, You're welcome. And it, so I, I heard you just kind of rattle off like a couple of those styles that come from that Afro-Caribbean tradition. Um, and, you know, just like um, Larnell got to kind of um, hip you to some of the, the, you know, the drum lingo and the drum world, it sounds like you got to uh, hip him and the rest of the band to some of those styles. Um, I, I don't know what any of those styles are. Um, I'm, you know, I'm fairly well versed in like Afro-Cuban stuff and Brazilian stuff, um, both of which uh, are non-drum set traditions, right? Like we mm-hmm. as drum set players have had to adapt these two, three, four, five piece percussion sections into, you know, a single instrument and in what we do on the drums. And I, I would imagine mm-hmm. that the styles you're talking about in the Afro-Caribbean thing are the same, right? Oh, man, I would say some of them traditionally. Yeah, so not not all. Um, Some of the stuff I would say even um, because like Zook is a little bit more um, recent. Mm -hmm. Some of that stuff built on the kit and then. um, Yeah, no, no, still on the kit um, in comparison, like you would say to like some of the some of the Afro-Cuban stuff. Right. Um, But I would say that like thanks. So Andrew, who produced the record, he's definitely a bit of a unicorn in the sense that like, how can I say this in Toronto, because of our care, the representation of our Caribbean diaspora, you, he definitely is someone who's like, he has Jamaican roots born in Canada, but amongst people like Eddie Bullen and Bruce Scarrett, those, these are keyboard players, producers that are based here that are playing more Afro like the more like Afro-Caribbean jazz. Mm-hmm. And so he he's kind of like been in and amongst and can really like be um, like exist in those spaces. Um, Jeremy Ledbetter, who plays keys on some of the tracks, he's actually David Rudder's um, piano player. And for those of you listening that don't know David Rudder, he's like this killing Calypsonian huh. from Trinidad and Tobago. And so, um, but I would say that, and, and, and I think that, um, so I think some of the other, and some of the other players like Elmer Ferrer is Cuban, um, Rosendo Tendi Leon, Cuban. Um, and so they don't necessarily exist in some of these spaces, mm-hmm. but sometimes um, Eric Sederon on guitar, um, I would say more hip to maybe some of those, some of the, um, the West African rooted music. Um, but at the same time, like sometimes you don't want that because that's kind of what gives you like you really feel that blending of like style, I think. Right. Um, right. You know I mean, yeah. So it wasn't that you were kind of like, you know, giving these guys references and being like, this is how it sounds playing, play it like this. You, you kind of wanted whatever they were bringing to it, whatever their background was, whatever sort of their musical DNA caused them, you know, to, to, to bring to it. You wanted that mixing. Yeah. So, so sometimes I would say definitely they would get the, they get references, mm-hmm. but sometimes 
no. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that just speaks to what we were talking about earlier. Like sometimes you lean into the traditional, you know, identity of it and, and sometimes we're going somewhere else. Um, super cool. So like in, you know, the future, whether it's the next year or five or 10 or whatever, I've, I've interviewed a number of artists who are married to someone who is also an, you know, an artist and has their own career. And sometimes they play together. Sometimes they collaborate. Sometimes they're just in totally separate games, even though they're both musicians. Um, but with you and Larnell, like how do you envision or how, you know, how have you, and how are you going to, um, you know, sort of balance each other's careers and, and serve each other's careers? Um, you know, it, it seems like you've done an amazing job of it so far. <laughs> um, but what is, what is the, the future hold as far as that? Uh, um, well, I don't know when this podcast is going to air, but we're actually going to like, we're, we're going on tour together. Oh, how cool. So, um, so that, that we leave in like two, I don't know, maybe like two weeks from now. So, um, not a big long tour, um, but we're going to go across Canada and we have, you know, we're going to come out to DC and the States and maybe do some other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but it's funny because, because I was actually playing with my band before him. We have this joke that he stole my band. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so we have this band that like plays his book and plays my book. And so we're kind of like double billing wow, um, cool. and, and mixing our shows together. Um, and then we've been working on a duo um, so pretty much like, uh, like I'll, I have like, you know, produce some tracks and then we're like, I'll play pan. He plays drums and like, he's also like programming some stuff and we're just like looping different stuff in Ableton. So we're looking at that just to be able to have, you know, like a smaller offering. Mm -hmm. And because, um, you know, like he, I, he was really keen. He really wants to like lean more into producer Larnell and mm -hmm. and same thing for me like I really want to lean into that um to, to to that work and I feel like that kind of lent itself to it and I think also the pandemic um I'm so sorry I no, think the right. pandemic also kind of forced that like what are you doing at home <laughs> who do you right. live with yeah you no know? and again not to say that we weren't we weren't composing or maybe creating music and just jamming together but this idea of like putting something together that's a finished product as a duo has become more of a thing. Um, and so, yeah, we got, we got our first placement on a song oh, <laughs> together nice. uh, for, you know, over the pandemic. So that I would say that's happening. And then I, you know, then we have separate things. And I think right now it kind of, when, when my, in these first few years um, between the, my son and daughter and just having children close together and, um, I was kind of that primary caregiver. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of have been more home and he has been more out. Right. Like whether he you know, he's a full-time professor at Humber or whether he's on the road. Um, and I think that has worked. For, it worked well for that season for what the, our children needed. Yeah. Um, and I think now it really just depends on our support system, how we'll approach the next step. Um, but we're literally, you know, like sitting there and he's talking to me about how much time he wants to be out on the road. And I'm talking about the same things and we're just trying to figure out how to make that work. And I think it'll, it'll work just fine. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that when I met Larnell, I knew who he is right. and who he desires to be and what I know what his dreams are. And so, and I know that like, if I can support him to, to realize those things that I'm going to get the best, the best person out of him. And I think yep. he feels the same way. So I don't, um, you know, I think it, it'll get hectic sometimes, but I know that it'll be worth it because I know that like he will show up as the person that he's meant to be and me to him. Right. Um, yeah. And like, and so literally my, our kids are coming on tour. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and I'm planning it with, you know, we're working with our assistant to go through all the planning and it's crazy. And it's crazy to be tra planning to tra travel with a trait four year old yeah. with like the medical stuff. And we have to bring our nurse and, right. you know, but I think it's, um, but I really think that like, we've just trying to like manifest things that we believe are what we're supposed to do. And 
Larnell is the kind of person that like, I, the thing that I love about him is that he's such a visionary and his, when he plays music, he wants to change the atmosphere and he wants to impact people. Mm-hmm. And so if someone says, Joy, you have a gig and I'm like, I got to bring my kids, then I'm going to figure out how to do it because I'm supposed to be there. And I'm supposed to be changing that atmosphere. And now we have to do it together because he's still my dad. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, but, and I think, I think it's just like, I'm more like, what are we going to do? Like, what do we, what needs to happen? And how is it going to, how are we going to make it happen? Right. Um, and so that's that we'll see, we'll see but I'm confident that it's going to be good. Yeah. I mean, I, I always tell people that, you know, as, as a musician, you know, the, the, the best you can hope for in a partner is, is someone who's going to uh, want you to be, you know, the best version of yourself that you can be and not, you know, like recognize that passion in you, not ask you to step back from it, you know, realize that like that, that is part of what makes you who you are. Um, but also it's, it's not just about sort of, you know, with, with my wife, like she knew what she was getting into, same as you. (laughs) Um, and you know, along, along with the, um, you know, sort of the supportive and nurturing and, and, uh, ego boosting and all the shit she has to do with me. Um, (laughs) there's, you know, she, she holds me accountable to do what I say I want to do. Um, and as a musician, as a creative person, as an artist, like if you, if you have a partner, um, who is not only like, yeah, go like, go do the music, but is also like, really fucking do it. And if you don't do it, you're going to hear about it from me because I know you can do it. So go do it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's really, I think the, uh, we, we both, we both really won the lottery, <laughs> I think in terms of our partners, uh, you know, yes. recognizing what we're capable of and, and really helping us do it. This was great talking to you. I really appreciate you doing it. I'm, I'm really glad this is a great conversation. Awesome. Well, best of luck with it and good luck with those kids. Thank you. And thanks so much for talking. Thank you, Zach. Congratulations for, you know, on this on this initiative. And um, thank you. Just really thank you for having me. There you go. Thanks again to Joy Laps for that talk. Really cool to hear from that unique artist. Come back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Until then, stay safe, stay sane. And thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.